We've moved into the cycle where every major company is going to announce an AI initiative and all that sort of stuff. I do think it's life-changing. The intersection though with blockchain is for AI to actually be meaningfully changing the world, it has to be somewhat decentralized. If it's not, then it just probably results in the end of the world, right? The AI needs anxiety, it needs decentralization, and that's where the intersection with blockchain is kind of obvious. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Opto Sessions. I've got Mike Venuto on the show, CIO and co-founder of Tidal Financial Group and portfolio manager of Block, an actively managed blockchain ETF. How are you doing, Mike? Very good. Excited to be here again. Three or four months since we last caught up and a lot happening in the industry, so obviously there's always things to, to talk about. So I thought we could start by just talking about uh, the Bitcoin halving. Obviously, something that's on, well, anyone is in crypto, you know, knows about the halving. And we're coming round to that time again. Uh, I believe it's April next year. So the big question is, do, do you perceive it as the catalyst that everyone thinks it will be for, for the next uh, bull market in, in cryptocurrencies? Or is it a potentially a non-event? I've heard, you know, a few people um, talking about it just not having that much impact. What are your thoughts on the matter? It's kind of impossible for it to not have an impact, right? Because it is how the miners are compensated. And if they're getting half as much Bitcoin, well, that's a that's a big haircut, right? Um, <laughs> knowing you're going to expend essentially the same amount of resources to receive half as much of the commodity that you're producing, well, that's got to shake out the market in some way, right? It's either the price has to go up or the amount of people mining has to go down. Like there's all kinds of things that are built into the original Satoshi code and concept that um, kind of are a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Now, what does that mean for price? Because that's the real question that everybody wants to know, right? Like, uh, does number go up? And uh the answer to that one is I have no idea. I can say historically it has. Does it go up, you know, three months before or three months after or six months after or nine months after? When does this all come together? What else is going on in the world at that time? Is there monetary easing? Is there monetary tightening? Is there a war? Is there another plague? What what do we got? Right? Like um what's on your bingo card? Do we have aliens that we actually believe in? Like, you know, like who knows? So I, I don't have the answer to whether or not um, the short-term behavior of Bitcoin is going to change massively in relation to the halving. I do know that historically it has correlated, and I do know that over time it will have a, a major impact because this, the system's self-regulating. And do you think you know, this time might be different or that we should sort of alluding to may as a possibility might be because it's, it's, it's Bitcoin's got so many eyes on it nowadays and a different you know, types of investors. You've got institutional investors, retail investors that maybe it's different to how it has been before. And so, you know, it, it, you can't say it's just going to re react in the same way every halving. I mean, th there's so much money on the sidelines. There's so much money earning 5.5% in money markets and whatnot right now. And there's so little, so tiny amount of institutional adoption at this point. And to me, from what I can tell, or from the tea leaves that I'm looking at, sentiment going into this one is so negative that the upside surprise power here is just such an amazing coiled spring, right? There's so much kinetic energy built up because there hasn't been this hype. There hasn't been really that much good news, right? I, you know, the biggest drag on this has been regulators, right? Like, so I don't think this time's going to be that different. If it was going to be different, it could be a more violent surprise up because uh, it's been held down. And you're right, there's a lot more eyes on it, but most of them haven't bought. <laughs> right? Like uh, when number goes up, they get excited. <laughs> and um, of course, one of the reasons why there's been a bit of sort of uncertainty around at the moment is the Fed and predicting what their decision making will be. And do you believe in this, this, this sort of new new worse relatively new i suppose that i'm saying uh, higher for longer essentially at the last meeting which the acting markets have sort of, sort of tried to change and adopt to that new policy but is this something that they're able to actually commit to do you think next year and then the year after that their commitment will only last as long as the market allows them to be committed right so right now whether through skill or luck they've orchestrated what looks like the first soft landing in history right if it stays soft They'll stay higher for longer. If it starts to get a credit crisis, a um, any kind of event that that really collapses the market, 
the doves will fly right back in. So to me, it's just rhetoric. I wouldn't put much faith in their commitment. I think it's something that, yeah, it has been surprising, but it's also been lucky. Yeah. You think, uh, I mean, the economy has been pretty resilient, right? I mean, I don't know what your perspective on it is, but even the job numbers seem to be relatively stable at the moment. We had a, a little uptick in unemployment rate, but nothing too too destructive. I mean. Yeah. So it's strange because stock market in the US is up. Well, stock markets globally are basically up. Bonds are pretty flat, except maybe the last couple of days, they kind of wiped out whatever they had for the year. Long duration is disaster, but uh, that's because they, they believe they're going to be longer for, I mean, higher for longer. So that all these little numbers say everything's pretty good. You talk to individual business owners and you hear pulling back our marketing budgets, we're pulling back our spending. So it does feel like the soft recession is occurring. It's just not making it into the numbers because it's masked by that magnificent seven or the AI boom, right? Like, so you have, you have about half the stocks down 20% from their highs a year ago. So that doesn't sound like this bull run that the numbers suggest exist, but you know, you take away NVIDIA and, and Meta and all of a sudden these indexes would not look quite so spectacular. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, especially the Russell, I think, has really not gone anywhere for quite some time. Yeah, small caps have not really participated. And I mean, it's, it's, it's strange. Like you thought, everybody thought, well, once they take the monetary easing away, the um, hegemony of the top five, top seven stocks will disappear. It won't, it won't be this passive beta rally anymore. Your value will return. Small caps will return. Emerging markets will return. None of that has occurred, right? We, we were, we had money pumping in the system and there was top five, seven stocks. Now we have money pulled out of the system, top five stocks. So doesn't seem sustainable to me. The world always mean reverts. I just don't know what the the catalyst is. I don't know if it's a, we have to tear it down to build back up something normalized or, or, you know, the soft landing becomes a soft realization of value again. We'll see. Yep. Interesting times for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad we're with these four rainy days. We've, we've got your audience all pipe humped up right now, right? Like they're all excited after <laughs> this gloomy picture of uh, who knows what's going to happen. I mean, uh, I think it's worse to tell people, to expect uncertainty than to expect a down market or an up market. At least those they can get excited about on one side or another. I'm sorry, audience, that um, what we're facing is a, a wall of uncertainty. <laughs> yeah, it is. Until there's yeah some distinctive change in the numbers, it seems like. We just don't know, do they? No, nobody knows what the Fed's going to do. I've been so surprised at the bond prices, though, to be honest, because they're meant to be some of the smartest traders as far as like, uh, people, you know, thought, other thought leaders talk about bond traders as some of the the smartest traders and uh, I mean they're not the only things moving the market so I know that there's other, other forces weighing in there but even the lot you mentioned the long-term rates just crazy how high they've got now yeah usually this is a symptom and not a cause when when the bond markets move like this it's a realization of some sort of event credit event that that is permeating up and it's not clear yet to everybody what it is um, it usually shows itself after the damage is done like always well, I thought we could go back when, to the Bitcoin price and now, and I just had a quick question about. Um, so it's one of those things again that that's almost like a cycle or a wave, right? So when we have a lot of global liquidity, um, Bitcoin becomes a risk asset for people, and they want to participate in it. Right. Um, it's like, OK, I've got tons of liquidity. I can be a speculator on the other end of the spectrum. When there's a ton of global liquidity, you have disintermediation of, of currency. Right. You have devaluation. And then people tend to look to Bitcoin as a monetary policy that's disinflationary. So it's kind of like at the peak of each wave, right? At the peak of liquidity, people are getting excited about Bitcoin. Then as liquidity dries up in the middle, they tend to run away. And then when it's back at the end and they're, and they're pulling it away, pulling that liquidity away, all of a sudden uh, people are, are back into the game, right? So it's, it's kind of like Bitcoin's a play on the extremes. In the middles, people tend to, to not focus as much. Yeah. And is, it, is this something you actively monitor? Do you feel like it's influential to the ETF or is it something that you look at or you're not concerned with it? And if you do look at it, how do you measure 
that's what the global yeah so i take a very long-term view right so um with block where an actively managed fund. So we're able to up exposure when, you know, when sentiment seems to be positive for the overall blockchain industry, which is by far dominated by Bitcoin and lower it at other times when sentiment is off. Now, sentiment can be a question of what's going on in cryptocurrencies or blockchain and Bitcoin, or it could be what's going on in traditional finance in terms of valuations and, and monetary policy and you know whether or not things are trading at 25 PEs or 15 PEs and things like that. For us, the the short-term price movements of Bitcoin really mean nothing, right? Like we have a thesis of where it's going over time and and you know participation's pretty easy for us we're mostly managing downside right like getting the upside of of cryptocurrency or bitcoin blockchain not too hard right so we like to say the touchdowns come easy it's the sacks that we're good at avoiding right um it's taking the gains when when things seem exuberant it's hiding out <laughs> when uh when uh everybody's running for the door um, and then it's very easy to layer back in because the runs are so violent to the upside right it's it's easy yeah. to participate and coming back to the dollar do you think it's it's going to devalue a lot long term based on the fact that if this model plays out again where the economy gets into trouble the fed starts printing easing again which you know is just devaluing the currency further uh, which is I mean, even though the dollar's been going up against other currencies globally more recently, if you looked at it as a denominator, it has been decreasing, like devaluing itself, even though it's going up against other currencies. It's like a global devaluation of currency due to the printing of money. Is that something you believe that long term will cause another asset bubble similar to what we've seen already? Because it seems like that was the one of the main causes of that. The policies of moving off of some sort of standard, a gold standard or any kind of discipline and just being able to go into further and further and further into debt, it's just not a sustainable thing, right? Like um, it's the demise of almost every major culture, right? Is devaluing the currency. I don't see how um, they change that policy. I think that the hope is that technology, AI, something creates so much production that uh, um, we essentially softly inflate our way out of these debts. Um, I, without that, the devaluation to a point of hyperinflation and the end of the dollar dominance is inevitable. Um, I believe that even politicians have bought the AI hype that, uh, you know, universal basic income will just be produced and we'll all be in this utopia. Um, you know, I like humans. I hope we can get there. Uh, but uh, <laughs> if it's going to be a rocky road, so I'm going to own quite a bit of Bitcoin during that time. <laughs> so, in the scenario where there is obviously hyperinflation, Bitcoin as a hedge against that, you know, will do very well. But well, the other theory. scenario with a massive increase in, in productivity, what is the how how would it be impacted in that scenario? It's really interesting because I do think there is an intersection with blockchain and AI that that um, once the hype is done and people come back to like listening to people who actually think about this stuff, like like Dr. Stuart Russell, who's actually thought through AI instead of just you know does the commercials that we constantly see now and and you know we've moved into the cycle where every major company is going to announce an AI initiative and all that sort of stuff I do think it's life-changing the intersection though with blockchain is for AI to actually be meaningfully changing the world it has to be somewhat decentralized if it's not then it just <laughs> probably results in the end of the world, right? Like um, uh, <laughs> the AI needs anxiety. It needs decentralization. And that's where the intersection with blockchain is kind of obvious. Um, it, it can be the, the commerce platform within AI. It can be um, 
a way to distribute knowledge to AI or data that the AI can use. But I don't see a, a world where AI creates utopia using general pur- g- general purpose AI in a utopia where it's centralized. That that just I don't see how that's possible. Yeah. Um, so there, yeah. So just- Sorry, I know we're a little off topic, but. Uh, it's kind of hard not to, to to look at this today, right? Like it's just yeah, yeah no, it's really interesting. Is it is this something you're really keeping on top of? Yeah, for for block. Well, so we keep on top of it for block. We're also partners in another ETF uh, with the ticker Chat um, that's actively managed by Roundhill, and it was an idea that we worked on with them. So I see the intersections because I work on multiple different ETFs. Right today. Our platform services 117 ETFs and almost $9 billion. Block is the one where I'm the lead active portfolio manager. It's the one where I spend the most time. But I get to see these intersections and trends into other businesses all the time. I mean, it's awesome this, because uh, for me, it's one of the most interesting ETFs. It has so much potential over the next sort of decade. There's so many interesting innovations that can come through it. So good place to be. To think we, we only started it What's it? So it's 2018 is when we launched. There was maybe four pure plays back then. Now I can make the portfolio 100% with pure plays. Um, like the industry has leaps and bounds in five years. They were, when we started, we had six segments of the blockchain industry we looked at. We're now up to eight, right? Like there was concepts that didn't exist five years ago. Um, like it was all, it was almost like um, science fiction five years ago, right? Um, ordinals was like, I, back five years ago, we were talking about coloring coins. That was the concept of ordinals back then. I know we're going to cover that later, but like, the language is, the language has changed. It's unbelievable. What, what's your view on ordinals? Do you see it as, as uh, something that will actually drive more value from, from the, the Bitcoin blockchain or is it? The demise of, of Bitcoin, as, as many you know, hardcore believers believe. I do not think it's the demise of Bitcoin. Um, for me, I do. <laughs> okay, Mike, could you could you possibly just explain ordinals uh, in a bit as well? Because there'd be a lot of people that don't you know fully understand what they are as well. So, so the short version of what an ordinal is is it's the ability to code some information above and beyond simply a transaction on a Bitcoin. Or, or not even just a Bitcoin, a Satoshi, a, a block of code. Um, it's similar to many of the applications that have been thought of as smart contracts within other chains like Ethereum. Um, so it's adding a second layer of application to the original Bitcoin code. So you could see how purist <laughs> could be like, oh my God, it's the end. No, this took... I don't know, five years of consensus building to get Taproot in there to eventually get to the use of Taproot for ordinals. So so for me, it's it's confirming of a theory that I've held probably since 2016, which is anything any other blockchain can do, Bitcoin can do better. Now, when I say that, it's not better right away. Without a doubt, smart contracts work better on other chains right now. Um, the reason it's not better right away is because Bitcoin is actually decentralized and actually takes consensus. So change happens slower. Now, slower in the world of Bitcoin or crypto or blockchain is still light years faster than the world of government or, or human politics or whatever uh, or evolution. Uh, but it's still much, much slower, right? Like somebody wants to create some new chain. They they come out, they go find some silly name. You know, I don't know. Um, I can't even think of one. Uh, Pet Rocks <laughs> chain, right? And they create some sort of thing and boom, it's out there, right? If that thing gets us on and Bitcoin is the dominant chain, eventually, I believe whatever people like in another chain will be co-opted into Bitcoin slowly, maybe five, 10, 15 years later. But to me, ordinals are really the Ethereum killer, right? It's proof. Now, 
that doesn't mean that Ethereum's gone. It, I seriously doubt Ethereum is gone. Um, uh, I think Ethereum has a lot of value, uh, but I think over time, the best parts of Ethereum will be co-opted or merged into the Bitcoin base layer chain or built on top in a secondary layer. Um, and I think ordinals have proved that. Now, from a business standpoint, they've been a huge win for the miners because they weren't counting on that as revenue, right? So so all of a sudden, they're not just getting rewarded with coins. They're making transaction fees for verifying movements of ordinals. Boom, that's extra revenue. They get pretty excited about yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah, I hadn't considered that. That's a good thing to... So the, the big miners have now got another revenue stream. Has that been reflected in earnings to date? Or is this, I can't remember when ordinals came out. I think a lot of it was seen in the second quarter. Um, second, maybe maybe you'll see some in the third quarter numbers. But I also think it's something that it's long-term makes a difference. It's, it's zero extra cost to them. So it's just incremental. Now, I mean, the hype on it came and already slowed down. Um, not surprising, right? I mean, of course, the, the you know the first thing we did was make frog NFTs or whatever with this um, <laughs> ordinals. So we, it's not like uh, we the hype went first. Um, I wouldn't say it's going to be massively meaningful in the short run to their to their revenue it was a nice minor surprise um but long term i think it will be massively meaningful uh just talking about the the hype that's been around obviously a lot of people have been talking about the the etfs bitcoin etfs so quickly i thought we could just have a, a quick discussion on that do you think this will have a big impact on on, on bitcoin and, and and crypto going forward or uh do you see it as a potential uh downside risk as well because institutional traders get access to it they can obviously play the the long or short side of it um so you can see some quite big price swings related to them you know pushing around the market but i don't know if it's it's too big now for them to do that or what are your thoughts yeah it's not too big for them to push around the market it's actually relatively small in terms of the flows that institutions could add to this right like um you know so so what do we got in this race right now so right now we have um i don't know 10 or 12 spot bitcoin request from um blackrock arc and 21 shares bitwise vanek wisdom tree valkyrie um they're all basically the same filing um and every time one of them updates it the others follow so yesterday i know, I know we don't like to say days but recently bitwise updated theirs and put a bunch of information in so i expect all the others will follow suit um one of our partners hashdex which already has a spot bitcoin etf in brazil and has one in europe and bermuda um they have a filing out there to take an existing 33 act futures fund and convert it to allow it to use futures and spot I think that one's got a lot of legs. Now, obviously, I've biased because I helped with it, but I think it gives the regulators the opportunity to say, okay, this thing is going to transact on traditional financial rails, but settle in spot Bitcoin. So they don't have to worry about forcing the market makers, the APs, the clearinghouses to deal with Bitcoin. They can deal with futures, but the end investor ends up holding spot Bitcoin. Um, so we actually have the ticker DeFi on that one, and it's already trading out there. Um, it's amazing to me that Canada already has these. We own four spot Bitcoin ETFs inside block in aggregate about a 4.5% position. Um, and we use the Canadian ones. There's some in Europe. There's some in Brazil. There's some in Bermuda. Like There's some in – actually, right now, I think in Asia, they only have futures-based ones. Um so, you know, everybody's talked a lot about the significance of BlackRock jumping in. I don't think it's significant other than it shows that they know it's going to be a desired asset class. I don't think they know anything. I don't think they're ahead of anybody. I think that's all hype cycle. Um, 
Then there was a big hype cycle on the Grayscale lawsuit. Not surprised they won. Have no idea what that really means other than the SEC has to come up with another reason to say no. Um, I do not believe Grayscale will ever convert to an ETF. Um, I think they have to say that. I wish them the best, uh, but, uh, you know, I don't see how it's in their best interest. Um, and that could be very damaging to Bitcoin price if they do succeed, because obviously 20% ish wants out, right? So <laughs> if it trades at NAV, I don't think they're staying in. Um, uh, you know, they might ride that last wave or whatever, but uh, we'll see. Um, I do commend them for forcing the hand of the regulators because that has been the hardest thing for U.S. investors is regulation by enforcement instead of regulation by communicating, right? Um, you know, there are so many good companies out there just saying, tell us what you want us to do and we'll do it. Instead, it's, hey, uh, you know, come here and we'll talk to you. And and then you get there and they're like, oh no, we, we have no idea what we're doing. So good luck. And then people go and do what they think is right. And all of a sudden they get sued. Um, you know, uh, what else is in that Bitcoin debate? Oh, everybody's focused on Coinbase being the custodian. That blows me away right after the SEC sues them. And, you know, they, the, so like, that's interesting. Um, it doesn't appear to be in the U.S., any company that really conforms to what they're calling the requirements for a qualified custodian. Um, so my opinion is maybe third quarter, fourth quarter next year, we'll see a spot Bitcoin ETF. I know Bloomberg and a lot of others are predicting, you know, it's going to come this year. I give that almost a 0% chance that we see it in 2023. Um, I think the approvals will start to come in March, April, May, June next year. And then the actual launches will probably be two to three months after that. I think there's a whole bunch of questions that haven't been asked yet. Um, how are you going to clear this? And who's does the APs need to have an account with Coinbase? And, and like all the traditional finance rails... I think the SEC usually would have worked this out with the issuers, but because they hung themselves to this not a regulated market, no surveillance sharing, they didn't get to a lot of the questions that still need to be worked out. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. There's a lot to do. A lot to do. A lot of wood to chop. Yeah. Anything we've learned, yeah, it's a slow process. <laughs> yeah. Do you think uh, Coinbase as the custodian for the BlackRock ETF, is that a, a big positive for them in terms of, you know, as if it all goes through and that's what they are, is that, is that something they're going to drive real revenue from? Yeah. I mean, they, they absolutely will, but the reality is this, they're going to drive most of their revenue from the fact that the number is going to go up, right? You're going to have massive amounts of money that just couldn't access this, couldn't hold it on the balance sheet, their IPS, their, their rules for what they can and can't own to, to just don't include you know, a digital asset held at a, a non-qualified custodian, stick it in an ETF. Now it just, now it's just the same as buying GLD. Right. Um, so that's the access point. This is really good for ETF investors. It's really good for traditional institutional investors. A big flux of money that doesn't understand it may not be good for Bitcoin. Um, it might be great for the price, uh, It'll be great for the miners. It won't be long lived, right? You were asking earlier, is this so big now that this time is different and the volatility is going to be out? And now, now, now we've just got larger sums of dumber money. <laughs> so be potentially even more swings than before. Potentially even more swings. Yeah. So coming back to the Bitcoin miners, um, would you agree that there's there's a very which makes sense a very strong like positive correlation between their price and the Bitcoin price? I mean, I've seen some charts overlaid. It looks like they almost sort of match it with some degree of you know um, irregularity with the price. But is that something you've you've uh, sort of seen as well? I think it's more like a leveraged play. So I I got into I'm gonna I'm gonna give a little digression story. Um, 
I used to work at a, a hedge fund, mutual fund, SMA shop called Horizon Kinetics. And in 2005, our biggest position was Newmont Mining, a gold mining stock. We owned it, you know, as a deep value kind of company. That year, gold went straight up. Newmont Mining did not. And it was because all of a sudden there was this ETF called GLD from State Street. And for the first time, people could get direct exposure to gold and didn't need a miner to get that exposure. So Newmont historically has behaved like a leveraged version of gold, right? Um, When it goes up, it goes up more. When it goes down, it goes down more. Um, Same for what became GDX, the, the gold mining ETF. I think in the future, when we have spot Bitcoin as an ETF out there, you'll see that move with Bitcoin at you know 99% correlation. The futures ones are at 98% correlation. Uh, the, so it's not like we're far off uh, or 97, whatever. Um, and then you'll have the miners. They'll have a high correlation. But when the spot goes up, they'll go up more because people will get more excited. They'll think there's a multiplier. And when they go, when the stock goes down or the spot goes down, the miners will take the hit more, right? Because they really don't have anything they can cut, right? Um, you know, the best miners, the asset that they have that makes them the best miners is usually twofold. They have somebody who understands energy arbitrage and they have an amazing CFO. Those are the two differentiators when Dan Weisskopf and Ryan, my team of analysts and Will, are looking for Bitcoin miners. Like they're, There's maybe 12 or 15 public ones, depending on where your market cap level is that you're willing to stomach. I think right now we own seven. And what we're looking for is balance sheet slash CFO, somebody who knows how to get through the winters, the bear cycles, knows how to get the right machines financed properly, deal with traditional finance, deal with the PFIC issues, deal with all the the crap in traditional finance. Um, That's extremely important. And then on the other side, it's energy arbitrage. Riot's probably the greatest example of that, right? They'll turn off the machines sometimes because they can make more money by getting credits back on the energy, Right, like, so it's 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 strange because the miners that do the best are not the big believers. They're not the um, they're not the maxis. They're the ones who are looking at it as a financial arbitrage, regulatory arbitrage, energy arbitrage business. And but they still so coming back to I had a question about um, Marion Riot they still hold a lot of, of Bitcoin on, on, the, on their balance sheet uh, I think something like five to six billion or something is it around that amount they're, they're quite similar I think and then I had a, I was thinking about so MicroStrategy obviously I've got a huge amount of Bitcoin on, on their balance sheet I think it's about 10x that um, and in the event of the price of Bitcoin that just goes up over time which ones of these companies are going to benefit most from a, an increase in the Bitcoin price because they're slightly different companies obviously MicroStrategy is not just I, I believe they've been working on additional technologies you know, in, in blockchain so there's some other possibilities there for them but obviously their biggest and, and most well known way to make profit is you know, the, the, the amount of Bitcoin they've got how do you see them differing when the, when the price of, of Bitcoin goes up? So, obviously, Michael Saylor has done his homework. Michael Saylor is the chairman of and founder of MicroStrategies and has decided to focus on building applications on Lightning and keeping his software slash cloud business live and whatever profits he has, he reinvests in the Bitcoin. He had must have gone down the path of saying, is it better for me to spend $100 million to buy Bitcoin directly or to spend $100 million to buy miners and mine it? And at some point, he looked at it and said, it makes more sense for me to buy and hold than it does for me to mine. Why does that work for him versus these others making the decision to mine it? Well, he was an already established business with a balance sheet and a shit ton of cash that he couldn't reinvest to get a return on. So that's where he comes up with his, what he calls his macro strategy, right? To, to buy Bitcoin with his balance sheet. The capital intensive nature of a miner 
works great for a startup that's raising venture money and do most of these, many of these came public through SPACs and all of that. They get to a certain size um, and mining obviously continues to get harder with difficulty rates, hash rates, halvings. It makes more sense for them to adapt his strategy. Uh, right? So his strategy works for him because he had an established business that he was changing. Mara strategy, Riot strategy was work for them because they're in gobble up growth mode, right? With good CFOs who are figuring out this. Which one's a more stable business? Well, obviously MicroStrategies, right? It's 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 simple. However, Bitcoin goes up a hundred percent, MicroStrategies will probably go up a hundred percent. Bitcoin goes up a hundred percent, Riot and Mara will probably go up one fifty to two hundred. Because they're leveraged plays on it. The you know, same on the other side, though, right? Bitcoin goes down fifty. Mara and Riot are going to be down seventy. Micro will probably be down about fifty. It's going to have a higher correlation, less risk, more correlation. Yeah, I've got you. And they're a levered play. Why, in, in comparison to MicroStrategy? MicroStrategy does not need to invest in new machines to keep its Bitcoin. Mara and Riot have to go through upgrade cycles. I've been to these farms. I've been to to Riot's Waystone. There is constant, I mean, uh, not, is it? Windstone, Windstone. It's huge. It's acres. And there's tractors and, and, and transformers. And the people there, they're not excited about Bitcoin. They're excited about how they figure out immersion. They're excited about how they figure out a new way to cool something, a new way to rack something, a new way to get a transformer, a new way to to get arbitrage on the energy. Like it's it's like a culture that um, almost like they don't even care about the un- well. I don't want to say that the, the senior management do care about the technology of of blockchain and Bitcoin. But the average person working there doesn't even really care. To them, it's just a server farm that they want to run as yeah. efficiently as possible. That's awesome. I'd love to go see those. Uh, I, I, although it's just like rows and rows of servers, it's, I must, it must be pretty impressive. Uh, there, it depends on. So each one is different. I've seen where they take. Um, what are they called the shipping containers and turn them into miners. That's kind of a standardized thing. That's, that's probably not something people will do much more of in the future. I've seen big Tyvek buildings, you know, where they're insulated that way. So it's easy to cool. Uh, I've been to a mine uh, in North Carolina where <laughs> it doesn't snow, right? It'll snow all around the mine, but the snow can't land on the property where the mine is because it's so much heat being dispersed. So they actually have like a partnership with one of the universities to do like uh, agriculture on the mine. And it used to be an industrial factory that had a cooling system uh, by taking water out of the mountain and they re rebrought that cooling system back. So it's, it's um, pretty amazing stuff, man. These, the innovations you see at these mines and the way they solve problems. Uh, recently, I got to go to the one in Texas and see the immersion for the first time, which immersion, for those who don't know, it, most when, when you run these machines, they generate heat. Um, I actually had a friend who worked at Fidelity who got a miner. Um, he lived in... Um, North L, north of LA, um, so pretty mild some winters, but he would run a miner <laughs> uh, to heat <laughs> a room. Now the the fans that that cool them can be uh, quite loud. So um, what what you see is they won't sell immersion machines. Bitmain doesn't sell them. Nobody sells immersion machines. So you have to buy the machine whole, and you have to take the fan off you have to burn out the chip that tells it to cool itself then you put it in a in a like um uh i guess almost like a man-made river <laughs> of what is essentially baby oil and you move the baby oil across them and that keeps them cool and allows you to clock them harder 
to get them to run more efficiently and then they just recycle that oil constantly so you'll go into this one room and it'll sound um just a constant like like a hornet's nest very loud hornet's nest um and there'll be some sort of central place to push the air up and then you'll go into the next room and it sounds like a babbling brook right like almost like a zen garden um so yeah the the, the innovations are quite amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, talking about innovations, I thought we could just touch on Overstock as well because I know it's one of your more, well, one of the interesting holdings of the of the ETF, uh, and because they ho- have a venture arm that holds numerous different stakes in, in blockchain focused businesses. Any anything developed there in the last sort of three months? I know things that's quite a short time period, but or just maybe highlighting a few of the most interesting things that they're working on. So um, yeah, I think we're the only like you know I think there's like ten or fifteen other blockchain ETFs um, that are much smaller and most of them are passive. I think we're the only ones who still own Overstock. And it's strange to me, right? Like, Because it was one of the coolest names when the fund first came out. Our relationship with Overstock has been up and down multiple times in terms of size of position. Um, We actually reduced it substantially this summer after an amazing run um, because the news cycle on it went from the parts I care about, like T0 or Settlement or Pure Nova, these are all blockchain ventures that they're financing or own. Um, we got very excited about Grain Chain because so much has happened um, with grains uh, in response to the Ukraine invasion and everything. Uh, grain Chain's basically a way to, it's kind of like a way to trade and settle uh, sugar, soybean coffee, things like that. But in, in markets where they don't have our futures that we have in the US or the developed markets. So it's, it's a way for them to to hedge themselves in Argentina or Brazil or places like that. Um, so exciting things there. But the news cycle on Overstock went from things happening there to them buying Bed Bath Beyond's leftover assets. So when we saw that, we got a nice little win on some of the price movement. Took a big uh, reduction in the in the uh, the amount of it or percentage we wanted to keep in the portfolio because right now it's it's way more a retailer and a turnaround story on on uh, a depressed asset than it is about the blockchain component. Um, so to us, it's still an extremely important position. But again, we took quite a bit of profits on it this year. Yeah. And I thought um, another one of the holdings of the block ETF, Roblox, you've mentioned it's a pure play in the metaverse and the, and the mobile gaming themes. And I thought you could, we could you'd shed some more light on that. Yeah. So like we hinted at earlier when we were talking about AI, um, for the metaverse to work, and it's there's a long way to go. Uh, <laughs> hence, you could see the the uh, the pivot at Facebook or whatever they want to call themselves today. Um, right? Oh, we're a metaverse company. Oh no, wait, wait, we're just going to copy TikTok. <laughs> um, uh, you know, there's a long way to go. But for the metaverse to work, just like for AI to work, there needs to be some form of decentralization. And that tends to be where the intersection is between blockchain and metaverse. So I would not say Roblox is a pure play blockchain company. I would say it's a pure play metaverse company. And we know that's going to be a meaningful part of the um, the blockchain community in the future. So Roblox was the place where we found the most interesting way to get the exposure. We started really small. And every time the market made it smaller, we bit off some more. Um, so to me, this is a core position that we're building over time. I don't know when it's going to see the catalyst and the realization. Um, I do think it's going to have some AI impact as well. So um, I'm excited about the company and what it brings to the portfolio that is very different from everything else in the portfolio. Yeah, yeah. And just coming back to the last three months, I, I think, is there any other things in the block ETF? Any big developments? Uh, we talked about a few already, but it'd be great to get an update from you on other things that have been moving. And, and looking forward, you know, what what, what, what are you perceive might happen? So um, 
most of our summer was spent taking profits, <laughs> um, right? Because yeah. we, we had a great, yeah, a great Q1, great Q2, right? Um, participated a lot in the miners. Um, you know, we have a discipline where we don't let things stay above 5%. So simply being forced to take profits on things that did extremely well and then redeploy to new things like adding to Roblox, adding to PayPal, adding to to um, um, Riot. And then some... I want to. I don't want to say fully new names, but names that have come back. So, there's two positions that we owned five years ago and exited, maybe two or three years ago, that we've brought back, and mainly because they talked about blockchain five years ago, but never fully executed, and then now they're back to execution. And so, one of the things we wanted to look for were more non-US emerging marketplaces. So two that were in the original portfolio that are now back. Uh, one is called Wipro, which is a tech firm in, in India. I was really looking for something interesting in India. And that's the one that Weisskopf really decided to go with. And, you know, that they, they've engaged with us. We've talked to them. We see where they're going. The other one is Opera, which is a search engine that's mostly used in the emerging markets, but they also do peer-to-peer lending, micro-lending. They used to have a whole blockchain section on their website, but every time you talk to them, you couldn't get a straight answer. Um, now, so we, you know, we exited because when management can't give us a straight answer, we're out. Um, now they're back, they're fully engaged, and I think they're going to make some amazing impacts in the emerging markets with an existing client base. Um, yeah. Yeah. So those are some some kinds of ways we've pivoted over the summer, I would say. Took some profits on some miners, pivoted to some more emerging market, you know, smaller names. Um, not all small because we brought in Alibaba, you know, small positions and some of the e-commerce stuff that's been beat up um, that's interconnected with blockchain. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> So, man, this is going to come off the wrong way. I know it, but uh, and, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's just a rose by any other name is still a rose. Like all it is, is using blockchain to account for the movement of money in T's in a zero trans settlement. Right. So it's not really any different than an accounting system. They're just calling it a stable coin. Right. So like to me, there's no there's no code like Bitcoin where you could take it and, and it's and it's fungible and, and all that. To me, it's just a, an accounting system um, um, using blockchain and, and zero time settlement. It's a good story and it, it probably will work well, but nobody's ever going to take a, what do we call it, a PYUSD off of PayPal and bring it somewhere else, right? It's it's going to exist inside PayPal. Um, it's kind of like uh, all these other companies, like these settlement companies, uh, Securency and things like that. They're just accounting systems using blockchain. So to me, it's, it's a stable coin for marketing purposes. For reality purposes, it's an accounting system. <laughs> So yeah, the so innovation is not really there, or the, the 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 use case that you'd like to see from a stablecoin. However, theoretically, it could be a way for PayPal to get more mass adoption of their people using block, PayPal for blockchain related things. Yeah, absolutely. There's nobody who's going to make a good stablecoin right now because if you did, the Gary Gensler is going to knock on your door, right? So so. The PayPal stablecoin is most essentially an accounting system, right? Um, USDC was real. Tether is what it is. But just people start using it for real, they're going to get a knock on the door and there's going to be like, hey, we didn't tell you this, but this we think this might be a security. And we're not even going to say it, we're sure, but we're going to tie you up in the courts for a couple of years for 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 no reason. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. you know, like <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy, isn't it? There's been a, a drawn out nightmare. This I don't know how, how long is Gary Gensler stay in this position for? We've got many more years before. It, it doesn't. It's it's not. It's Gary's not the problem. It's that at the 
top levels of our government, there's no decision made on whether or not they want to embrace this or not. Potentially, the new elections round the corner-ish, a year and a bit away, is it? So you might you might find a different approach to it. Or I don't know. We we had a Republican administration, and at that time we had um, what's his name Clayton in there, and he was totally against this shit. Then we got a Democratic one. We put Gensler in there. Oh, he her, MIT this and that. He's, he loves this stuff. No, he doesn't matter what he thinks. It matters what his bosses are telling him. Because um, as soon as Clayton left, he's asking, he's lobbying for these companies. Right? So, <laughs> so uh, I don't think it's about Gary Gensler. I think it's about Congress or the administration needs to give clarity. This whole idea that the SEC is going to decide the U.S. government's stance on crypto was always a farce, right? That, that's the SEC is there to protect investors, not to make monetary policy right like yeah <laughs> yeah but i get it so yeah just indecision at the top probably because yep. they've not been super warm to it so that's where the indecisions come in from isn't it the indecision comes from this makes them irrelevant and if they can't control the money how can they control anything like um it, it's not it's power and control it's not surprising that that they're they're against it. It's just amazing that they've been able to control the narrative and let Gary be the fall guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. Well, Mike, it's been a, a wonderful time to, to, to speak to you again and, and uh, I hope we get a chance to do it again, again soon. There's so much going on in this industry. There's always stuff to talk about, it seems. So thanks for uh, enlightening us on a, on a lot of things that have been happening in the industry. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say before we, we wrap up? Uh, no, no. Uh- you know, check out the block ETF. We have tons of content. Also, uh, our YouTube channel at the ETF think tank has interviews with most of the CEOs from all this industry. Um, Michael Novogratz, sailor, Jamie at HUD eight, uh, Frank at, at hive. We've basically interviewed every CEO of every major blockchain company, whether public and private. That's great, so, man. um, it's great, great stuff. Thanks again, Mike. Uh, I hope you have a great rest of the day and um, we'll catch up soon. Okay. Thank you.